Well, good morning. For those that haven't met me, which is probably a decent number, unfortunately, my name is Carl Pafford. Like they said, I'm one of the elders here. And what I found out this last quarter is, is when you're changing jobs and you're a physician, you suddenly start working every weekend um, when you're leaving the group. So if I haven't met you yet, I apologize. I look forward to meeting you. Um, Terry Mulder, a previous elder of ours, liked to remind us that it's a privilege to serve as an elder. And part of a responsibility of being an elder is that we have backfill in for Ben when he teaches. He be great if you teach 52 weeks out of the year, but he isn't quite willing to do that and it's not healthy. So we have to do that. But like many privileges, what happens is, is when you have a rock star like Ben in the pulpit, those of us that have to come in, we feel a little pressure, let's say, to at least get somewhere even close to where he is. Well, we often have sermons ready to go because if something were to happen to Ben or the family, the elders need to step forward and preach. And I had a sermon ready to go for six, eight months. And unfortunately, it kind of changed. And I was joking with Ben and actually Kyle, who was playing guitar up here this morning, that what I did is I felt the need for a new revelation. So I just opened the book, stuck my finger, and I'm going to preach from the verse. Kind of like that commercial that's out there uh, from that car company. They, they throw the dart at Paris, Texas, and they travel off. Ben didn't appreciate it, but Kyle thought that was kind of a neat way to do it. Instead, I'm preaching on Know thyself in lamentations uh, through two things that happened in the last, oh, probably two months or so. Um, the first is actually, and I hope it translates, if I can have the next slide. Yeah, it's a little hard to see. I apologize. I was using PowerPoint, and apparently our software doesn't link with PowerPoint. So all the cool things I had, you get a fuzzy picture. But we teach students down at Johnson Memorial. We have med students, residents, and uh, physician assistant students. And they come from Butler, and... One of them came up to me and told me, because we always ask him, what do you want to do? She said, I'm going to do orthopedics. And I'm like, great. How did you decide you were going to do orthopedics? And she pulled out this flow chart. A little hard to see, I'm sure, from the back. It was from uh, 2005, kind of a tongue-in-cheek on how to determine what you're going to do in the medical field. And starts off at the top, and I'll just lead you through it. She's down at the bottom in ortho. You know, sane or crazy. She was obviously very sane. She did well. Actually... If she was my daughter at 23, I would have been proud to have her. Then the next one is hardworking, very or not. And she chose not. And I'm like, you work hard? She goes, no, you don't understand. I'm going to get married in a year. I want to have kids. I want to work well in my field, but I don't want that to be the only thing I do. And then she took it down to afraid of the light and afraid of the dark. And that's kind of a medical joke. But those people that love to be in a room all the time, they're radiologists. We say they're afraid of the light. It's always dark. They're always in there. She likes to be out. She wants to have a life where she's out and about. So she's, you know, afraid of the dark. And she thinks big. She doesn't want to be a super specialist PA that's, okay, I'm going to be a hand surgeon that only works on those parts of the hand that flex it. She wants to think big, the whole body. And finally, she was a jock, not a nerd. She played multiple sports in high school. She was a scholarship golf player, actually, at Butler. So she ended up with ortho, and when she did her rotation, she was like, wow, this really works. So we started laughing because, for those of you that know me, I have bounced around a fair bit in my life. Um, And I start off in family medicine, which is halfway down there. And it starts off with sane. I'm sane. Uh, Hardworking, very. Okay, that sounds good. I'm very nice, and I like kids and adults, so that makes sense. I did my residency in family medicine, practiced for about eight years full-time. Then she started laughing because she said, but you're in emergency medicine, and it's a much simpler thing. 
Crazy, yes. Attention span, non-existent. For those of you that know me, and if I had done this back in residency, I could have saved myself probably eight to ten years of hopping around if I had just known myself. So that happened about eight weeks ago, and I, I chuckled about it, but I was like, wow, okay. That's interesting. And then a couple weeks back, I gave a communion meditation. And like most of us do when we do that, if our family's in here, we ask our family, hey, how did I do? And Mary looked at me, and she goes, well, what you said was great, but I'm not sure that's the real you. And, well, it was 27 years this last week. It only took me 10 years to figure out that I need to listen to my wife. Instead of getting offended, I said, what do you mean? She goes, when you get up there behind the pulpit, you're different than the Carl that I know at home. And it stimulated some thought. And there's actually a book that we study in men's group back in the early 2000s called The Man in the Mirror by Patrick Morley. And he talks about in it, who are you? It's in chapter two. And he delineates it into two things, the visible you and the real you. And what Mary was saying to me was, I don't think that's always the real you that's up there. And Pat Morley says the visible you is the known you. It's never the real you. It's how we've learned to speak and interact with everybody. And I would argue there's more than just one visible you. I am a different person while I'm a flight surgeon with the fighter pilots at the A-10s than I am when I'm working in the ER, than I am at home, than when I'm up here in the stage. And that kind of hurt because the real you is the you that's known by God. It's who we are in our minds, that first instant. The only person that knows is you and God. That's the real you. So, as I started to put this together a couple weeks ago, I felt compelled, drawn, led, choose the verb you like, to really look at it. Plato said, the life which is unexamined is not worth living. In Lamentations 3.40 it says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Well, I don't think I've left the Lord But I certainly have not examined my ways recently. And with that, I felt drawn in to really look at it. And this sermon is what happened because of that. Some of the points I'm going to mention may resonate with you, may not. It's all different. But the purpose of this sermon is where I got to where I am right now, sitting here behind this pulpit, hopefully more of the real Carl and not the elder Carl that you've seen in the past, because that's what we're called to do. Now, one thing is, Mary did say that because I'm changing my sermon, I can't go long because she's with the kids. So I tried to keep it short as I open this up. But uh, for those that work in the back, they know that when we tend to go long from the stage, they're the ones that suffer. So looking in the mirror, the three things that really hit me, and these are going to seem simple to Christians out there. I was created by God. We all were created by God. I'm a sinner. Well, yeah, that's a tenet of the basic gospel. We're all sinners. And finally, that I was adopted by God. You say, well, Carl, thanks. That's a quick sermon. But each one of these, as I just kind of looked at myself, brought it back to me, things that I have become, and to use the verb, complacent. Ordinarily, my sermons, I like to give a little definition. However, apparently Joshua called me out last week, so we're going to skip the definition of complacent. And we're just going to go forward with the fact that I had become comfortable with the Christian I was and really hadn't looked at, examined myself. And why I didn't need to return to God, boy, I certainly could be closer. So created by God, I'm going to hit three points. Fearfully and wonderfully made, created in God's image, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. And any good sermon person will tell you 
that you must have three points or three subpoints to be a good sermon. So I'm starting off pretty good right now. Fearfully and wonderfully made. In Psalm 139.14, David says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Philip Brand and Philip Yancey, or excuse me, Paul Brand and Philip Yancey wrote a great book. Before I became a doctor, it was called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. My wife got it for me. I read it. And it really drew me in. It stimulated myself about, wow, we were fearfully and wonderfully made. I came across this quote when I was researching this. God has fearfully and wonderfully made us. Setting us apart is the brightest, clearest mirror of God's creativity. While evolutionary biology considers us nothing more than glorified apes, scientific research confirms humans are vastly unique on many levels. In the ER, I have to be somewhat politically correct. It is a requirement. I often, when explaining things, will say, we were created, designed, or evolved. Choose whatever verb you want, and then go to explain something that's going on with them. But I'm here to say that I truly believe we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The next slide, and I hope it translated across pretty well, this is something I deal with every day. Actually, everybody here deals with every day. We were created in such a way that no matter if we're cut, we bruise ourselves, we clot, and we clot quickly. Every med student, nursing student, you learn this. That right there is about 14 different steps from injury to forming of a clot. Some people, as I'm seeing out there, (laughs) clot better than others, or you're on medicine. However, this is something that was created. And every time you hold pressure on something, you cut yourself shaving. You bruise yourself and you don't bleed out. In the ER, we bring stitches and staples to the game to bring things together to help the clotting form. This was not a one in a bazillion designed evolution. If the temperature's not right, if you're not making the chemicals you need to make, if it doesn't happen in the proper sequence, we would all bleed out. There's literally millions of unique things that we were made with, fearfully and wonderfully made, that for me that I work with every day that I just take for granted. The fact that we all have brains that we're able to process, remember emotions. The fact we have a skin that is able to hold infection out. The fact that everything works together and created is something beyond designed, beyond evolved. We were made. And I work with it every day and I realized, you know what? I don't acknowledge it. I actually belittle it by saying created, designed, evolved. Wow. So then I started thinking, not only were we fearfully and wonderfully made, we were created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 states, So God created man in his own image. In the image of man he created him. Male and female he created them. I would love to take credit for this quote, but it's from J.J. Parker. Uh, He wrote an article in Christianity Today that says, Image means representative likeness which tells us at once that we should be reflecting on our creaturely level what Genesis 1 shows God is and does. Therefore, we should always act with resourceful rationality and wise love, making and executing praiseworthy plans just as God did in creation. He generated value by producing what was truly good. So should we. We should be showing love and goodwill towards all other persons as God did when he blessed Adam and Eve. In the fellowship with God, we should directly honor and obey him by the way we manage and care for that bit of created order that he gives us to look after according to his dominion mandate. 
We were created in the image of God, not just that physical image. You know, my son Jeremy, who's not here, he's out at Hollywood marching with the Fisher's marching band, but he always likes to go, this chiseled jaw, this Adonis-like body. When we think of image, feel free to, to call him out on that, by the way. But when we think of image of God, we picture that uh, Sistine Chapel with Michelangelo, what he painted up there and the spark of life going to this physical image of God. But we were created as so much more than that. And I tend to overlook that all the time. Rationality, purpose, doing good things, dominion over the earth that we're called to do. Again, complacency. I had to accept my image wasn't always reflecting that resourceful rationality, wise love, or praiseworthy plans. Oh, I have plenty of rationalizations, as I imagine we all do. I'm imperfect. My sins are forgiven. I'm not perfect like God. We were set apart by God, the only one of his creations to reflect his glory. We're set apart from all the other creatures that he created. We can discern what's right and wrong. There's no animal models out there that can talk about pride, shame, or guilt. Now, anybody that owns a dog knows they'll sit there and they'll look guilt and they do things. But that's a response. That's not an internal understanding value system. We were created with a moral reflection of God. If we're created by God, we need to do more than just reflect. I remember, and I grew up in the Catholic Church, as many of you know, the whole tattoo thing in the 70s was a big deal because in the Old Testament it talks about you shouldn't ink your body, and of course people were getting them. They said, well, you know, you're creating God's image. God didn't have tattoos. I remember Father Dan saying that over and over again. We're way past this, folks. We're creating God's image. We need to reflect everything that is moral and right about him. I've been complacent about it. I don't think I've gone out and done over evil, but I certainly haven't thought about what have I been doing, resourcefulness, rationality, you know, in God's world, in the church here, in my own family. And then that led to the final piece, Temple of the Holy Spirit. Those have been in the church a lot. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nineteen through twenty. Or do you do or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. We focus a lot on this about glorify God with your body. You're not your own. We bought the price. Um, I came across this again in part of the research. If God simply meant the idea that the spirit resides in us, could use the words house, home, residence. But by choosing the word temple to describe the spirit's dwelling, he conveys the idea that our bodies are the shrine or a sacred place. Therefore, how we behave, think, and speak, and how we, what we let into the temple through our eyes and ears becomes critically important as well. For every thought, word, and deed is in his view, the Holy Spirit's view, in God's view. Even though he will never leave us, it is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, it states that. Paul instructed the Ephesians not to grieve the Spirit. He told them to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Wow. If you think of yourself as an actual shrine, a holy place for the Holy Spirit. Not saying the Holy Spirit leaves, because it can't. When you accept the Holy Spirit into you, when you expect, excuse me, accept Christ as your Savior, it's there. But you can grieve the Holy Spirit, and I guarantee I know I've grieved the Holy Spirit. When I'm hanging out with those A-10 pilots or I'm deployed overseas, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, 
what I'm doing, it is grieving the Holy Spirit. Um, I think everybody here probably could say that this has happened in their lives. We become complacent because we tend to accept the world with, well, that's the world. We need to be the sheep, not the goats. Our last lesson in small group was talking about how Jesus' parable, how the sheep and the goats come together. And the sheep are Christians, and the goats are those that think they're Christians, yet the sheep are separated to the right and the goats to the left. I don't want to be that goat. I want to be a sheep who's accepted. How do I do that? I do that by honoring the Holy Spirit in me, by living that shrine, by being there, not being complacent, being of the world. That Holy Spirit's there, but as Jesus said in that passage, you know, there's those that think that they are saved who are not. I don't ever want to be there. I know I'm saved, and I want to honor God with the Holy Spirit. So that was the body, and as a doctor, that's like, wow, that resonated with me. But then, and this is a family joke that my small group hears sometimes, growing up Catholic, we learn all about guilt. So then I started to feel guilty because I'm a sinner. Everybody here is a sinner, basic tenet of faith. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are saved by Christ. By accepting Christ, our sins are covered. We will spend an eternity with God. So I'm a sinner. I know I'm saved by grace. But I think I tend to belittle sin because I've become used to it. You know, in the Bible, sin is variously described as the work of the devil, John 8, 44, as wounds and bruises, Isaiah 1, 6, as a burden, Psalm 38, 4, as something that defiles, Titus 1, 15, a heavy debt, Matthew 6, 12 through 15, a stain, Isaiah 1, 18, and darkness, 1 John 1, 6. We often describe it in today's lexicon as brokenness. We're broken by our sin. All those tend to be things that happen to us. Um, Billy Graham gave the following answer when he was asked, what is the definition of sin? He states, a sin is any thought or action that falls short of God's will. God is perfect, and anything we do that falls short of his perfection is sin. Well, that kind of flips that idea of sin when I think I'm a sinner. All these things that were done to me because I'm broken and everything suddenly becomes, wow, anything I do that falls short of the glory of God is a sin. And I said earlier, I know I'm not perfect and I know I'm covered by Jesus's blood. But it really, when I read that quote, it kind of was one of those, oh my goodness moments and sit back. And I really didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to examine myself in that mirror. Because how am I ever going to hit that level? So I looked into sin a little bit. And the first thing that I dove into is God doesn't tolerate sin. I've heard over the years, uh, sitting out there in the congregation, different studies that, you know, God can't be in the presence of sin. But it's not because God is afraid of sin or because he's unable to deal with sin. He doesn't tolerate it. Ben and I were talking about this a little bit, but two weeks ago, and he gave me a great word picture. I'll share with you. Think back to the old TV cartoons, and you see the housewife or the guy or the cat that jumps up on the chair when a mouse comes in the room. Get it out, get it out, get it out, and the mouse runs around and everybody laughs or whatever it is. You know, that's not God. God is not scared of anything. God created all. God is not, I have to leave because there's sin here. And biblically, that's supported. If you look in Job, God called Satan into his presence to discuss Job. In Moses' time, back in 
Exodus. He told Moses in front of the burning bush, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Covered him with his hand. Moses is a sinner. We're all sinners. Anybody knows that. In addition, when Isaiah in the vision of heaven, Ben preached about this a couple weeks ago, called him to heaven, he said, woe is me for I'm unclean. God purified him. So God can call sin in his presence. Another word picture somebody shared with me is God is like a blowtorch to sin. If he doesn't want it there, it's like a moth in front of a blowtorch. It's gone. Well, God doesn't tolerate sin, and I know I'm a sinner. And even though I know I'm covered, you know, maybe I haven't thought about sin as serious as it is. Maybe I haven't thought that, wow, yes, I'm covered, and I'm going to be before Christ, with Christ before God someday. But I really didn't take sin that seriously. And then the rationalization part hit. Um, we're born into sin. Romans 5:12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's a great rationalization. How can I help but to sin? I'm created in this broken world. Adam, when he and Eve were separated by God with sin, Paul talks about it here. Sin was led into the world. All are going to sin. The perfect world is gone. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans, said, The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what happened because of Adam. And what has happened, and yet will happen because of Christ. I focus on the back end. Christ came for me. Christ saved me. I focus on the back end. Boy, I forget that whole part that I have this original sin here, that no matter what, it's there. Paul addresses the book of Romans, which we went through in great detail. And I remember um, Ben talking about, you know, in Romans, how we tend to look at things as, well, my sin is forgiven. This is great. But if anybody remembers the monk Rasputin around the time of the czars, he was this crazy monk who went around and said, well, if I sin, I get more grace the more I sin. And before he was assassinated, he was known for this huge excesses he did. Paul addresses that in Romans 6, but we tend to forget, we don't forget this, excuse me, Rasputin forgot this, that what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Yet if we don't think about what sin is, boy, it's real easy not to say I'm going to get more grace from it, but, you know, it's sin and I'm covered. Maybe I don't need to look at my life. Where am I sinning at? What's going on? So that led me into James 4.17 and how we continue to sin. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we've been born in sin. This gets back to what Billy Graham talked about there in his definition of sin. There's sins of omission. Boy, I just forget to do it. Sins of commission. I'm focusing. I'm actually sinning. Well, we do a lot of sins of omission. I can tell you there's things I know I should be doing. Whether it's as simple as, you know, somebody we're called to take care of the poor. Well, that person on the side of the road. You know, I just read an article how they're making 20, 30 bucks an hour doing this. I don't know that. You know, we're called to take care of them. Boy, I had $3 in my pocket because I just went through McDonald's. Uh, I don't meet their eyes. Maybe it's the language that's used in my house or where I'm around. Or maybe language I'm using when I'm hanging with the pilots. You know. We continue to sin. And this really beat me down. It did. I admit it because I'm a sinner. And even though I'm covered, 
You know, I'm kind of a type A and I want to do something about it. I can't correct my sins. I can only work better at it. But Paul in Galatians gave us the answer. And it's, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 tells us our sins are forgiven. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Okay. And I know I have a spirit in me. We talked about it with the temple being the temple. So my walkout point with this was, boy, I need to look at sin indifferently. I need to walk by the spirit. I need to take that spirit that's in this temple of mine, really move forward. Well, as anybody knows, any good motivational speech has, you know, they tear you down and they bring you back up. Well, I truly believe I was kind of led that way with this because I ended up in Romans 8, again, preached on by Ben, in 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you're put to death by the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you who did, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't know if any of y'all have seen Remember the Titans. I'm sure a few of you did. There's this scene where that final game and Coach Yost, they've been beat down. Kind of what I felt with going through this. And he looks them in the eye and says, all right now, I don't want them to gain another yard. You blitz all night. If they cross the line of scrimmage, I'll take every last one of you out. You make sure they remember forever the night they played the Titans. He had that negative. I'm going to pull you out, but remember to build them up. Well, the second half of this verse is what built me up. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's a great theologian out there, Spurgeon, and he wrote it better than I ever could, so I'll give him credit. It's his words, but he describes Paul's style as building sort of a Jacob's ladder that takes us up from one step to the next. First, he says, we're being led by the Spirit of God. You're sons of God. We saw in this context that this does not refer to the Spirit's leading us in matters of guidance about life's choices, but the Spirit's leading us to kill sin. If the Holy Spirit is prompting and enabling you to fight against and kill your sin, it's an evidence that should assure you that you're a child of God. Remember when I was talking about the sheep and goats? Do you have that Spirit prompting you? that spirit in there? If not, if you grieve the spirit, the spirit's not communicating with you. Are you saved? As Spurgeon says, yes, the spirit can lead you, but in this verse we're talking about helping us kill the urge to sin. We're still going to sin. We all fall short, but the spirit in us is a sign that we're a child of God. Next up the ladder, if you're a child of God, you're an heir. Then he goes higher. You're an heir with God himself and a joint heir with Christ. The uppermost rung of the ladder is that we'll be glorified with him. 
Spurgeon applies this by saying that we that every grace we receive should lead us to seek after something higher still. We should never be, and here's the word, complacent, or think that we've arrived spiritually. We should seek to be filled more and more with the fullness of God. So this is that Titan speech. I've been beat down, but there, you know, we are children of God because of the Spirit. Again, not anything we've done, but the Holy Spirit in us has made us children of God. We're adopted. Adoption is a legal parent-child relationship. In addition to that, we're now co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. We're going to receive new bodies. We're going to be on the new earth. We will rule with Christ. We're just not little peons that are sitting there running around on the new world doing whatever. We are co-heirs with Christ. And yes, there will be suffering. It says that. You know, the phrase out there, first world suffering. Nobody knows what that suffering is going to be individually for everybody. And suffering can take many forms. That's a whole sermon or series of sermons about suffering. Yet as Christians, as co-heirs with Christ, we can expect to suffer for the final peace, which is we will receive the glory and be with God. So that was the part that really hammered the final part home for me was, yes, I have been complacent. I don't take sin as serious as I should. Boy, I've looked past what is the glory of God and all these examples he's given me. However, God's word is filled with right there what we can expect. So for me, and like I said, these points may resonate with you. Maybe there's other places where you need to look in that mirror to come back to God. Let us trust and examine our ways. Have you looked at your ways recently? If you look at it every day, great. That is awesome. Don't ever stop. Always strive to go forward. If you're more like me, an established Christian who perhaps has been complacent, get back. Look in that mirror. For me, I, we were created by God. Fearfully, wonderfully made. Created in God's image that's not a physical image, but to reflect his glory and the work he does. And finally, as that temple of the Holy Spirit, a shrine for God. I'm a sinner. We all know we're sinners. But God doesn't tolerate sin, and I need to remember that. And if he doesn't, I need to not tolerate sin. While I'm born into sin and continue to sin, I need to change that. I can't change that I was born into sin in a sinful world. But boy, I can really do more in the Holy Spirit help guide me and kill those desires of the flesh that Paul talked about. And finally, I'm adopted by God, and that's the best news there is. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I will have an eternity, despite whatever suffering happens here on this earth. And that's the best news possible. So for me, I stand before you as an elder that says, yes, I've been complacent, but I'm moving forward. And I hope anybody out there that's struggling, we have elders at the side of the room at the end of the service. We have our staff. We are happy to sit, talk, and pray with you about it. But the good news is, these simple tenets are covered by our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have not been saved, again, I would encourage you to talk to those. If you have questions, talk with Ben, talk with Zach, talk with one of us. Look for those fruits. But I thank you for the privilege to be up here and share my little journey over six weeks. And I hope it stimulates you to test and examine your ways. If you need to return to the Lord, return to him. If you need to walk closer, walk closer. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you have provided us with the entire plan. And it's there. And Lord, in this world, day to day, week to week, 
we can often just get caught up in our own little struggles and forget the big picture. And Lord, as I've gone through this journey these past couple weeks, I thank you for bringing forward that this is your world that you created. You created me and everyone in it. You created us with purpose. You created us in your image. You've given us the Holy Spirit to help guide us and keep us on the path, Lord. Lord, I pray that we will always remember, day in and day out, even if it's 30 seconds in the mirror in the morning or taking a little break at lunch or just sitting there in traffic, Lord, that you have provided a way for us to eternally be with you. And God, thank you for that. I ask, Lord, that each and every one of us will examine ourselves diligently and faithfully and that we would be a body that serves you in all aspects. In your name we pray. Amen.